1: Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers & Company from the Archives. Today, Congolese-French writer Alain Mabancou. His recent books are charming explorations of childhood, family, and country. Alain Mabanku was born in Pointe-Noire, the principal port of the Republic of the Congo, in 1966. That was six years after the country achieved independence from France. It was also known as Congo Brazzaville, taking the name from its capital, and to distinguish it from the much larger Congo-Kinshasa, capital of the neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo, formerly Zaire, and before that, the Belgian Congo. Two countries, two different colonial histories, on either side of the Congo River. Alain grew up speaking numerous African languages before learning French and even Russian in school. He was raised by his mother and stepfather and a large extended family. When he was in his early 20s, he left for Paris to study law, and for 10 years he worked for a multinational corporation while also writing and publishing volumes of poetry. When he quit to devote himself to writing full-time, he produced more books of poetry, plus seven novels and several collections of essays. He's also won all sorts of prizes, including the Grand Prize of the Académie Française for his body of work, and appointed Chair of Artistic Creation at the Collège de France, an institution established in 1530 by King Francis I. Mabancou was also twice a finalist for the International Man Booker Prize. In 2002, he moved to the United States to teach, first at the University of Michigan and now at UCLA. He once said that the French he learned at age six was a river to be diverted, and he enjoys breaking the rules in his fiction. Maboncou's 2013 novel called Tomorrow I'll Be Twenty captures the voice and sensibility of his 10-year-old alter ego named Michel. Alongside it, he wrote a memoir, the lights of Pointe-Noire. About his experience of returning to his hometown, I spoke to Alain Mabonku on stage at the Vancouver Writers Festival in 2016. And just to keep in mind, English is his eighth or ninth language. In your autobiographical novel, tomorrow I'll be twenty, the young narrator describes himself as a real child of Pointe Noir. Mm-hmm. Here's where I learned to walk, to talk. Here's where I first saw rain fall. He says, and wherever you see your first rain fall, that's where you come from. It's a poetic and even magical idea about the rain. <clears throat> where does it come from? I think it came from
0: my mother. Huh? You don't understand how it's very important for an African to listen to the rain when like it's uh, 3 a.m. and uh, the rain is hitting your home. Sometimes the water is sinking, coming close to your bed. Then you're going to think that I am in the deep Africa, the real Africa in which I'm going to feel that uh, this is my world. So I'm still looking for in which country I can feel again the same sensation of that rain.
1: Both of these books are about the city where you grew up, the city mm-hmm. that shaped you, Pointe-Noire. Can you tell me a little about it, its history, its character?
0: Yes, Point Noir, it's a, it looks like a small city with a great market, which is called in French uh, Le Grand Marché everything is sold over there, even souls are sold over there. Mm-hmm. So that's what my mother would uh, explain to me that during the nights when uh, everybody has disappeared, then the ghosts come to the market in order to sell a lot of stuff people like us can see. But uh, people who can see the ghosts can, like, uh, realize that they have everything. They can sell your soul for the next year, in December, before the eve. And they're going to say, OK, uh, who's going to buy uh, this soul? And you can buy it. And some th- the days later, someone going to die in the country. So when... I often go to Congo or Pointe Noire, the first thing is not like uh, the city physically, but which is behind the city, the spirit of Pointe Noire. The sea is over there, population very crowded, a lot of uh, traffic sometimes, but if you go like in the popular quartier, you we'll see the real Pointe-Noire, how people are trying to work, how people are trying to survive. Because even if we have uh, the oil or the gas in Pointe-Noire, but it doesn't belong to the population, it belongs to the president. That's why from time to time, I have to take the opportunity to criticize those people who are trying, like, to kill this city of Pointe Noire, which has uh, given me what I've written so far.
1: Just to <laughs> clarify, Pointe Noire is yeah. uh, is part of the, the the small Republic of the Congo, also known as Congo Brazzaville, as distinct from its much larger na- neighbor, the Democratic mm. Republic of Congo or Congo Kinshasa, yeah. which was formerly Zaire, which was formerly the Belgian Congo. Mm-hmm. So it, it's the second largest city, and it's on the sea. It's a major seaport, and, and it's even a, a, a tourist destination. When you talk about the, the ghosts in the market, yes. did you believe in them?
0: Yes, I have to believe. Otherwise, I'm lost. You know, As an African, I have uh, to keep my African roots. At the same time, I can use the Western civilization. That may be the big advantage for a Francophone writer having, uh, I speak like seven African languages. So when I'm trying to write in French, it's a real struggle between languages. The French want to dominate, but the Lingala say that I was there before you cannot dominate me and it's a, it's a kind of struggle with the language in what's like language, I often dream I don't know I don't know exactly right now because uh, I've been speaking like uh, Lingala or Munukutuba. Um, in Is that what Congo. you spoke at home? at home, yes, in Congo we, we spoke uh, Bembe with my mother. We speak kikeng uh, with my father. All those languages are oral. It's not written, you know. You have to learn it on the, uh, in the street. It's because if you want, for instance, to date a girl, you know, the girl doesn't speak your language. So you need to... Uh, that's why you speak yeah, five. Yeah, that's why five. You speak. <laughs> I said that I speak seven. Seven, because, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah seven. <laughs> Because in a week, you have like seven days. So you have, a, each day, you have to you speak a covered. language. Yes, that's that, that, that why I stopped it with seven. But my father did speak like 20 languages. Languages from Angola, from Kinshasa, from Gabon. It's, is it because he worked in yeah. a hotel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was working in the hotel. Sometimes when, like, um, in France or somewhere else, when they say that uh, Lingala is not a language... How can they say that it's not a language when you have like hundreds of millions of people speaking Lingala? More than Italian, more than German. You see? So uh, I think that uh, Italian or German are considered from the Congolese perspective like uh, small languages. (laughs) So Lingala is bigger, it's powerful. It's full of images.
1: But it doesn't exist as a written language, though? Or is it changing now?
0: It it doesn't. We don't have literature Mm. in Lingala. You have, like, the Bible, of course, because the Bible is translated everywhere. You can find the Bible in Lingala. You can find some tales in Lingala, too. But uh, it's not taught at school. So you have just to learn it on the street, discussing with people here and there. And the music, when you listen to like uh, Franco, uh, Taboulet, all the Congolese music is written or it's sung in uh, Lingala. So that means that all the population from the Congo, Brazzaville, the Kinshasa or Cameroon, they are able to understand the Lingala.
1: What's the relationship between the two Congos?
0: The relationship is uh, good, I think, except uh, when it's come to politics, you know? Because (laughs) (laughs) like everywhere, the relation between people. uh, Are the people uh, fairly similar? Yes, we are similar. We have the same food, the same wife, the same music, the same water, the same way of uh, uh, getting tired. Everything is alike. (laughs) It's just the politician who came over there and who divided people. Let's think about like the Congo, which was like a huge kingdom. But it was divided during the Berlin Conference in the 19th century with Bismarck to avoid a war between France and Belgium, between Savornia de Brazza, who discovered Brazzaville, And Leopold uh, Stanley, who discovered Zaire. So it was one kingdom with one language, a lot of Mm languages, with Lingala above all those languages. Maybe the pronunciation may change, but uh, the substance is still the same.
1: You were born just a a few years after the official end of French colonial rule six years later. Six years later. Congo, Brazzaville, got its independence in August 1960. You were born in 1966. Mm -hmm. What did it mean in terms of everyday life there for your family and community? How present were the French even after independence?
0: No, we didn't have, like, uh, issues with uh, French people because as long as they were living in the center of the city, we were living in the favelas, like they they said at that time, there wasn't uh, a problem between... French authority and uh, Congolese people. The dream of all the Congolese was to go to France in order to succeed. It was easy for us to go to France because we speak French. Was that your
1: dream as a child to go to France? It was a
0: kind of dream given by the elders. Because you live, because the elders are, are dreaming to go to France. You say, why do they want to go to France? And I went over there when I was 20. I went to, went to become study. a lawyer and I get to France. I was thinking that uh, everybody was uh, rich. I was uh, surprised when I got to the train I saw like a French guy with a kind of bad clothes, playing a guitar in the metro and begging money. I was so scared. I called the Congo. I said, Ma'am, can you believe me? French people also are poor like us. It was like a a shock for me because we were like taught that uh, if you go to France, everybody is rich, you have just to... Banned uh, in order to take money everything is everywhere and everybody has his job and so on and so on it was a real shock that way i uh, i wrote my first book about that which is uh, entitled blue white red the colors of the, the french, flag. french flag yes
1: yeah. mm you describe how the city's various districts were named to reflect Mm. the activity of the original inhabitants Mm. or their ethnic or geographic origins. Your own street actually bore the name of your mother's ancestral village. How Mm. did that come about? Because my
0: uncle, Uncle Albert, was uh, working at that company for the electricity. So he gave electricity to to everyone in the quarter without paying. So just our house, so we have just to to push the wire over there in order to give the light to everybody. So they say that, so we should give the name of the street, Lubulu, for just honoring the uncle who is so kind with everybody. So it was like my village over there. But But also a
1: a lot of people from your mother's family moved to that area. Yes, everybody,
0: the the same time, because he went over there, and he was like uh, bringing everybody. He brought uh, my other uncle, he brought my mother, my cousin. So it was like all the village from Lubulu who came, in Pointe-Noire, living in this Cartier Rex, which is called now Cartier Louboulou, thanks to my my uncle.
1: It was called Cartier Rex after the cinema, the Rex cinema. Yes, the Rex is still (laughs)
0: there. The Cartier Rex, Rex, because of the cinema, is still there, and behind you have all the prostitutes living over there from uh, the Cartier Troissant.
1: But what was it like for you growing up? Because it was like a village for you when you were a child. It was like a village because
0: uh, of the fact that uh, I was thinking that my uncle was the president of the city because he was very important. He has a car and he uh, don't talk a lot. Uh, he's so kind. Uh, he would uh, spend all his time like helping people. So I felt very uh, good living in Cartier Troissons. I still think that um, it was one of my best period in my life, because uh, things were very easy. My mother would come over there, leave me to my uncle's house, and uh, I think that that's why I wrote the light of Pointe Noire so in you order to say to the uncle you. that even if you disappear, but I try to fix what you gave to us in a book with uh, the remains of that period.
1: I'm thinking that, in a a sense, writing your autobiographical novel, Tomorrow I'll Be 20, gave you an opportunity to re-inhabit that period, and then writing the memoir after that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, I wrote first the book about my childhood, Tomorrow I'll Be 20. I wrote it from France, and from America. But the light of Pointe Noire was written in the Congo. Because I went back in my city 23 years later. So I felt, uh, I was very shocked to see how people were living without taking care of the spirit of the city. I wanted just to point out in the book, the spirit of the city, the beliefs, the fact that uh, Pointe Noire is still a place to be, a place to visit, a place in which I think that it's time if I don't find what to write, I have just to think about that childhood and then everything gonna come like that.
1: Your mother, Pauline, is a central figure in your story. She was Mm -hmm. a a hard-working woman, a a small businesswoman, with a a stall in the market, as as well as some property. Uh, She didn't have any formal education. Can you tell me a bit about her her background, what she was like?
0: She didn't go to school. She couldn't read. She spoke barely French. Just because at the time, it was like... uh, People were thinking that it's a waste of time to send a woman to school. So my mother was very disappointed for not reading. So she was, she was very jealous of my father because my father would sit uh, under the tree reading the newspaper. And I was like amazed to see someone reading a newspaper. So my mother was just behind me looking at me while I was looking at my father who was reading. So she was jealous, she would like, no, I want to show to Ireland I can read the newspaper. Once my my father disappeared, my mother would take the same newspaper and try to simulate reading the, the newspaper. So one day I came over there, I saw that the newspaper was reversed. Upside down. <laughs> yes. I said to my mother, but it's not like that. We have uh, My father used to read the books. No, 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 no. I did it just to uh, make sure that you understand what is happening in the newspaper. So it was for me um, a real sadness to see that uh, she wanted to go to school, but she couldn't. And then she told me that... Uh, you have, you have to go to school. So she spent all her money in order to make sure that uh, I would uh, have a good education. She wanted me to go even in France, even if she wanted me to stay because I was the only kid, no sister, no brother. So seeing your son leaving for good. I went to France when I was 20. And at age of 25, she died. So she didn't see me coming back in the Congo. So that was like painful for her, but.
1: Uh, and you, your books are dedicated to her. All my books. Yeah. You
0: see, the, all the novel to my mother, Pauline Kenge, and so on and so. Maybe I'm trying to make her one of uh, maybe the most famous mother in African literature. <laughs> I think uh, I hope that I'm gonna succeed.
1: Your mother suffered not only from a a bad first marriage to an abusive man, but then from the loss of two babies at birth. As you said, you're an only child because there were two sisters Mm -hmm. before you, and then after you, there were were no more babies, another source of sorrow for her. How did she make sense of her losses? It was a big
0: issue at home because um, if you have the only kid in the house, people are going to tease you in the city. They call my mother like a uh, sorcier like the third like uh, what kind of woman she is she isn't able to have uh, another kid, and at the same time at school, I was like considered like uh, someone who was responsible of the fate of my mother because uh, in Congo, when you are the, the only kid, the explanation is simple it does mean that when you came out from the belly your mother's belly you locked the belly and you hide
1: you you hide the key yeah you
0: had the key somewhere so when they went like to see someone in order to try to help my mother and uh, the guy would say, no, you have to talk to that uh, little boy because he's the guy who has the key. If he doesn't give you the key, you're not going to have uh, another uh, children and so on and so on. So I was like surprised to see my mother and my father sometime coming. You know, Alain, we like you. But if you can give us the key, I say, what key? And so. So the book, like, uh, Tomorrow I'll Be 20, it's a book of a boy who is 10 and who is looking for that key in order to open, again, his mother's belly so that he can have brothers and sisters.
1: You absorbed your mother's losses in in your own own way, and the older sisters who never lived, they became your imaginary companions. Uh, The the young boy, uh, Michel, in your novel, Tomorrow I'll Be Mm -hmm. 20, thinks of them as stars in the sky. Mm Are they still with you? Still.
0: I think that uh, they give me the power. In my writing, I would like invent brothers, sisters. If you go to school, everybody is talking about, uh, I was with my sister, I was with my brother. So I would say that, yeah, 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 I have brothers and a sister, they live in France. So you can say that one month, two months, from. Uh, the third month, people are going to say, we don't we don't trust you. So one day, I brought a kind of catalog called La Redoute, in which you can buy uh, clothes. Uh, and you have the first part, you have the kids. That day, I found a good picture of two black kids. It was a girl and a boy close to a red car. And I brought it to school. I said, these are my, my mother brother and my sister. That's why they, they cannot come here because they live in France. I'm supposed to go to join them over there. And finally I went to France, but I didn't find brother and sister. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that gave me the power to write. The fact that I can't uh, create something which doesn't exist. that very important for a writer.
1: Why did it take 23 years for you to go back to Point Noir? Because
0: by the time I left the Congo, it was in the 90s, my country was facing two civil wars. We've always Denis Asungesso, Pascal Lissouba, the president. They were like fighting uh, about the oil uh, as usual. And the country did suffer a lot. Each time I wanted to come back in the Congo, my, ma- my mother would say, no, 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 don't come here. They're going to kill you. One uh, well, never knows. So I stayed over there. But in 1995, she disappeared. I couldn't even go over there. That's why in uh, the light of Montanoir, I explain why well, I didn't go to the funerals.
1: Well, it opens with the line, for a long time I let people think my mother was still alive.
0: Yes. And I'm still keeping this kind of assessment. I think that uh, thanks to my Congolese culture, people never die. The difference is there. In Europe, when someone dies, it disappears, it's okay. You put cemetery, you go. It's 1st of November, put the flowers, cry a little bit, it's okay. But in the Congo, you live with all those shadows, all those uh, ancestors. So I never think that, for instance, uh, my mother disappeared. I can like, if if I want to do something big, instead of asking God to help me, I'm going to ask the person I know the best. Because I know my mother better than God. That's why I think that it's important for me to keep in mind that uh, even if I'm living in the Western civilization, what is important for me as an African is to keep those beliefs in order to succeed.
1: When you were a student in France and your mother died, how did she die?
0: I didn't even want to know why she died. For me it was like so okay, before leaving France, I uh, told it in the book, we had the last meeting in Brazzaville in a kind of bar, and she was talking and talking, yes, I don't understand why the government want you to go to France. It's a kind of plot. They want to take my my kid why don't they send their own kid in France and so on and so on I knew that it was a kind of uh, a last will that uh, I'm not going to see her anymore but I really? knew, yes, I felt it I knew at the same time that it was uh, it was like that in our beliefs that she's going to disappear in order to get inside my body. That was maybe the explanation which kept me like alive, saying that, oh, it's okay, she didn't die, she is inside me. One can say that, oh, this is like African tales, but it's important for me to be like a naive in order to be a writer. A writer is just someone who is very naive, but who tries, to take this kind of uh, things which are considered naive and to put it in the field of the art.
1: Because one of your mother's last warnings before you left Africa mm-hmm. as a young man, when she went to meet you in, in Brazzaville before you were heading to Paris, mm-hmm. she said, just don't disappoint me. Yes. What do you think she meant? What kind of person did she want you to be? Just don't
0: disappoint me. She so said, don't forget that you are a Congolese, you are a Bembe, you are an African. I don't want you to go to Europe in order to become a black guy with uh, a white skin. Just remain who you are and try to spread your beliefs, your tradition to the other people at the same time, you have to take what is good to the other people in order to invent your own identity. I think that it was deep coming from someone who didn't go to school. I saw a lot of people with uh, three or four PhDs, they can't even think about that. It was simple, it was perfect, it was emotional, and uh, at the end of the day, it's has become my philosophy of every day.
1: Because you, you quote something else she said, which is I, I, I like a lot. And She said, become who you want to become, but always remember this, that hot water never forgets it used to be cold.
0: Yes. <laughs> That was his own, uh, yeah. which I did translate in French. Lo f- chaud n'oublie jamais qu'elle a été froide. That was maybe the title I wanted to give to the book, but I wanted to keep it inside in order to make people deserve such a wisdom. <laughs> yeah. Hey, my name is Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Front Burner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear FrontBurner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Alain the man you call Papa Roger was also an important influence. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't your biological father, but he seems to have been a very generous and loving man. What was he, what was he like?
0: He was uh, very short. I'm very tall. So my dream was to try to be maybe two or three feet taller than my, my father. And at the same time, he was my hero because he didn't know who was my mother, who I was. And then all of a sudden one day, he met my mother and he took my mother and he took me in order to be like, we're gonna create a family. We knew that he was married. With another wife with like seven or eight kids uh, over there, but he accepted like to be with my mother, and I did consider him like my real father. i didn't even want to meet my real father i don't know who he is. Did you ever meet him? Never. He tried at that time uh, when I was about to go to France. It was like proudness to say that to the people, he's my kid, he's going to France in order to become a lawyer because I wanted to go there in order to go to law school. And then he tried to show up. I, I sent a message letting people know that if I meet that guy, maybe I don't know what I'm going to do. So. I never see him. I don't know if he died. I don't know if he exists. I think that he died. That's fine. And uh, my real father is that guy, Papa Roger, because I was uh, like uh, maybe uh, one or two years when uh, he was my father. So I don't explain today the feeling of being a father. People think that being a father is to have a kid with your blood. But I think that being a father is a, is a feeling. It's what we can like, uh, transmit to a kid, how you can be a role model for a kid.
1: What are your, some, some of your best memories of
0: him? The best memories, seeing uh, I explain how seeing someone who is reading, seeing someone who is very calm, seeing someone who is very kind, seeing someone who never shouts, and at the same time, seeing someone who is taking care of two wives with seven kids over there, and one over there, and my mother, and sometimes he will stay with us three days, and three days later, he goes in the other house, and Sunday come back to my because he said that Mama Pauline is very calm. I don't have a lot of kids here, but I did prefer living with the seven kid over there because I was scared of being alone. When you are like your father, your mother, you are just there. You look like a referee, huh? Between, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? When you are eating, you look like a referee, you know? Uh, give me the salt. Oh, yes, give me the sugar. Yes, <laughs> give me the cup. Yeah. So I wanted to be among the other children. So I would go over there. And my mother was, like, uh, disappointed because once my father go to the other house, I'm going over there, too, and she would stay alone home. She was like bringing food in the the other house in order just to say that, no, 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 just to give for the kid and so on and so on. So Papa Roger was someone uh, who also gave me the opportunity to to read books. He was working at uh, Victory Palace, French Hotel. And when like French people came to, the Congo for vacation. They brought like uh, San Antonio, uh, all the books about uh, Gérard de Villiers, Guy Descartes. And they just leave it there and go back to Europe. And my father would take everything and put it home, letting us know nobody have to touch my books because I'm going to read it once I'm retired. So... <laughs> I never see him retired and reading a book. So once he disappeared, I went there and beginning my reading. That the first time I read uh, San Antonio, I read uh, Arthur Rimbaud, I read uh, all the book about uh, police, everything like that.
1: I want to just ask you a little about Arthur Rimbaud. He became yes. like. Uh, Obsession for uh, Well, uh, yeah, okay, elaborate. <laughs> and as if he were alive. I mean, there was his picture on, on the cover of the book, and and it was as if he inhabited the room.
0: Yeah, it was just a thin book. Une saison en enfer. The picture was like uh, a draw. You see, like, Arthur Rimbaud with this kind of uh, hairs. He's so young. He looked like my age, but a little bit uh, older. So I was... Uh, Wondering, who is that little boy? An angel, I think you... Yes, to he, he looked like an angel. I tried to read, but I couldn't understand, because reading Arthur Rimbaud, when you are 10, it's not, uh, <laughs> it not that easy. It's, you better read like uh, Le Petit Prince from Saint-Exupéry. It, uh, it, uh, so so it how, how did he become an obsession? It was an obsession because I was thinking that Arthur Rimbaud was looking at me every time I get in the room uh, in order to take a book. Because it was the first book up, you saw Arthur Rimbaud. So I wanted just to read the other book, but Arthur Rimbaud is looking at me.
1: <laughs> so uh, the feeling was very, very strange for me. And you would go to the, the French Cultural Institute, which had, yes. uh, had a library, and there, too, you imagine that some of the characters from comics and these other books, that they lived inside the room of the library. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's
0: uh, that the part of imagination, because I was thinking that, how come you are in a library, you see all those books over there, what's happened during the night? maybe the character go out, oh, oh uh, nice to meet you. How are we doing? Oh, fine, fun. Oh, go back to your book. Oh, because it's the morning. So I was thinking about the fact that maybe during the night, like in the Grand Marché, the great market of Congo, maybe during the night, all the characters from the book uh, said, oh, let's uh, have a dinner and they're over there
1: talking. And uh, so you were very so, imaginative. Yes, yes, I was thinking <laughs> about that.
0: But and plus more important, because the book was like settled by alphabetical order.
1: Yeah, you the books were alphabetically yeah. arranged, so and, and thinking, you thought you had to read them in that
0: order. But yeah, that way. So I was reading, first of all, all the author from the letter A, B, C, so I didn't uh, you never got to Zola. Zola. So <laughs> that's why Zola. I would like to take Zola book and put here to show to people that have read all the books <laughs> in the library. <laughs> you put him under your arm. Yes, because that be all the how oh, you are reading Zola. You have already finished all the books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just it was to impress the girl. You know. <laughs> uh.
1: Alain Mabancou, uh, you were talking about the time you spent with your father's other family Mm. and and those siblings, and and certainly the way you recount it, you were welcomed Mm. and treated like a brother to the family. Was polygamy a usual thing? Yes, it was a usual thing.
0: I strongly disagree about that, but it was like uh, usual at that time. And still now, I'm still responsible for the other (coughs) brothers, even if... In Europe, they, you can say, oh, no, no, you're not my brother, we don't have... For me, they're still like my brother and sisters. So even if they are suffering, I have to send money, I have to be... Even if I'm not there, if they want something, so I become now like a father for them. Because they think that living uh, in but, Europe or in America, you have money every time. So... Uh, you, don't, look, you don't mind? Because certainly you described I, 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 when I, you went back that everyone yes. was... I described how sometimes they need more. You give, they need more, the more you give, the more they want, and so mm-hmm. they think that, come on, you gave me $500, now you can give me 600 and once you give to uh, the little sister, he's going over there and said, oh, I've already gotten mine, so you have to call Alain. So every time I have to deal about that, but it's, it's okay. I think is that it, uh, it? it's okay for me because after all, in my book I talk uh, right about their story. It's thanks to them I've become who I am. <laughs> yes, so I owe them money or uh, royalties. <laughs> so I think that it's okay. So each time I'm sending the money, I say, okay, you have already your parts So. Just give me a little break this month. We're going to see what's going to happen. But it's important to give back what uh, you
1: took at that
0: time in order to succeed.
1: Alama mm-hmm. Abankou, uh, in your novel, Tomorrow I'll Be 20, you evoke the voices of your parents and, and the world of your childhood in what was then the People's Republic of Congo. Mm-hmm. And during that period, it was a self-declared Marxist-Leninist socialist state established <laughs> in 1970, mm-hmm. and it lasted for about 20 years. Was it a hopeful time in your country? What did you want to show about that world?
0: What I wanted to show it's uh, how... At the end of the French domination, like we said at that time, we embraced the communism coming from the Russia. So at that time, we would learn uh, Russian. That's why So I speak a little Russian, maybe in the room here, some Russian area. We can talk later. <laughs> that would be great. We learned Russian for like four years. Every time, we are professors coming from Russia, Mr. Kulchensky teaching us uh, chemistry, even history from the Congo, which wasn't taught by the French people, but the Russian come here, we're gonna teach you the history of the Congo. But we saw that they wanted to do a kind of another colonization over there, so we were aware of that. That brought us a lot of dictatorship, in the continent, because it was the time of Mobutu, the time of Idi Amin Dada.
1: Mobutu with of, Zaire and uh, Zaire and and Idi Amin in Uganda. Uganda,
0: yeah. uh, Africa. you have uh, Bokassa and so on and so on. But at the same time, the communism gave us the opportunity to rethink our own culture. And uh, I tried in my book to take this period of communism in order to reinvent it like one of the exciting period of our childhood because we would learn uh, philosophy coming from over there. We will uh, sing in Russian. We will become member of our unique party, the Parti Congolais du Travail. So I think that the, the Congolese Workers Party. Congolese. Yeah. I think that it was a, a sad page at the same time, an exciting page because it gave us the taste of how sometimes in Europe, when they invent a concept, they try to experiment it in Africa.
1: But the, the narrator in tomorrow I'll be twenty. Michel, as you were saying, is only ten. Mm. He's a young pioneer, but he seems to question a lot <laughs> about what goes around him. Were you like that yourself?
0: I think that Michel is me.
1: Yeah.
0: Michel is me, like Madame uh, like Flaubert uh, said Madame time, Bovary, like c'est moi. Madame Bovary, c'est moi. Donc, <laughs> I think Michel
1: is me. It's, uh, but he's he very was, he's very skeptical. He seems to have an excellent radar for lies and hypocrisy.
0: We, uh, because he was thinking that the communism is... Uh, Like helping people, you know, everything belongs to everybody. That what the president was saying at that time. Don't worry, uh, the land is for everybody. But at the same time, the president was with Mercedes, like a kingdom and so on and so on. So communism
1: was... So were you wise to that as a kid?
0: No. We were thinking that we need to applaud the president. We need to help the president to make us become very communists. We try to do our best. When we see that the plane, the president is coming, we would like greet him from the the land. Oh, the president is passing, he's working for our wellness or something like that. So I think that as a kid we didn't know what was going on in terms of politics.
1: But through the voice of your young narrator, we get an interesting and unusual angle on post-colonial Congo. I mean, about civil war and global politics and the big headlines of the 70s: the, the war in Vietnam, the overthrow of the Shah of Iran, mm-hmm. uh, the evils of Idi Amin, even the rumble in the jungle, the historic boxing match in 1974 between George Foreman and Muhammad Ali in, in, in the neighboring Kinshasa, Zaire. Michelle soaks it all up through the voice of listening to the voice of America. <laughs> Can you talk about the perspective from the Congo, how you saw the world as as a child?
0: Yes, because my father, every time he would put, like, uh, the voice of America. So the voice of America was that kind of radio in which we would listen to the news, the real news, compared to the news coming from the national radio, which belongs, at that time... uh, to Marien Gwabi before Sassoum president from the Congo. So, every day, my father would turn the radio on and we are listening to the name, Le Chat d'Iran, Idi Amin Dada, Henri Kissinger, all those names passing by like that. And the death of De Gaulle, the French president was like... Uh, a national mourning over there in the Congo. We were like, what's going on?
1: Well, that's, yeah. that's because the Gaulle used Congo-Brazzaville as a, as a base during yes. the Nazi occupation of France. Yes,
0: yes, but seeing that someone uh, died and people were crying in the Congo. Whereas you see, when you see like on French TV, you know, it was like, oh, it's okay, they are trying to do the best. But people cried. Do you understand Why? because de Gaulle was like a father for the people from the Congo, even from Bokassa or everywhere, because de Gaulle was there. He lived in the Congo Brazzaville from 1940 to 1942, during the occupation. Brazzaville was the French capital instead of Paris. So for us, it was like we are losing a father. So people would cry, uh, try to kill themselves in order to die with the general de Gaulle. It's it's happened. And you have in the Congo a tribe. They don't believe that the general de Gaulle died. So each month, if you go to the airport, they are waiting for the arrival of the general de Gaulle. You serious? So I, I was thinking about to write about that, but now it's Public on the radio, <laughs> <Someone> <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who's listening to. Uh, please, you gotta catch. You here. can st- you can yeah. still, you can still write. Yeah. About yeah. It, yeah. So that time they go down like you know the ancestor waiting for because they don't believe they think that it's a plot between the American and the Russian in order to make disappear le général de Gaulle. So those population waiting for the général de Gaulle why? Just because the day the General de Gaulle came over there, he met with our prophet, who is called Simon Kimbango. And once the General de Gaulle disappeared, Simon Kimbango disappeared also. So said, no. He cannot disappear with our prophet. So they are waiting for the prophet will going to come back with the General de Gaulle in Brazzaville. So France needs to be aware that the General de Gaulle will be back. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 blah, blah, blah. Your character, Michel, is wonderfully ironic. He says, the French really liked us, and we like them too. They still like us, in fact, because they go on looking after our oil for us. (laughs) When, When did you become aware of what was really going on? I think that the way my
0: father was explaining the political situation, because we have to think that at that time... I was like 10 or 11, my mother didn't go to school, so only my father could explain what is going on, so mainly would say, okay, they are fighting because of the gas, they want that, 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 and in my head, or my small brain, I was trying to explain that to my friend at school explaining to them who is Arthur Rimbaud, who is the general de Gaulle, why the general de Gaulle is going to come back, what's going on with uh, Bokassa, who is that and that. I think that writing that book, the main issue was to find the voice. How to find the
1: voice which going to fit the age I had at that time. In returning home to Pointe Noir the first time after 23 years, you said you, it, it was difficult and some of the things you saw were, were troubling to you. Mm. Do you feel you recovered some part of yourself that you had lost or forgotten in, in going back?
0: Yes, I think I recovered that. That's why maybe I wrote uh, a book. And uh, I didn't feel that I was going somewhere which was dangerous. I was only sad for not uh, seeing again what was the image of my childhood. But overall, it's still that country in which I can see things behind the reality. This is very important to have such a land in which you can read what is visible and at the same time, you can like perceive what is behind, beneath, or under, which is rare. I, can, I don't have this kind of feeling when I'm in Paris or in Los Angeles. It's not the same, that the difference in Los Angeles, I have to see what is shining now. In France, I want to see what is like being spiritual there. But in the Congo, I'm going to see what is like uh, this kind of excitement within me and to see the ghosts who are talking to me. They are not ghosts like here, but they are the spirits who are protecting me forever.
1: It's a great pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Merci. Alama Boncour at the Vancouver Writers' Festival in 2016. The Lights of Point Noir is published by The New Press. Tomorrow I'll Be 20 is available in paperback from Serpent's Tale. Mabonku's most recent novel in English translation is The Death of Comrade President. He also has a book of poetry called As Long as Trees Take Root in the Earth and other poems. Today's show was produced by senior producer Sandra Rabinovich. Katie Swales is also producer, with thanks to Melissa Gismondi. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, looking back on one of the most celebrated American writers, Philip Roth. From Goodbye Columbus and Portnoy's Complaint to The Plot Against America. Philip Roth died in 2018. He was 85, but his legacy lives on. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.